So it came out of the audience, hit him on the back of the head. He thought that was the Iggy, jumped out of the ring, and the battle royal was done. <laughs> I did not know that. That's great. Let's start the show. For those who do not know, the biggest wrestling spectacular, names from all over the country, former champions, I've never seen anything like it. Eddie Graham, Florida Promotion, Vern Gagne, Superstar Billy Graham, Road Warriors, Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, Dory Funk, Harley Race, uh, Nick Bockwinkle. This is Cigars and Conversation with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire. Hello and welcome to Cigars and Conversations, brought to you exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. I am your co-host, Jay Gilke, and I am sitting with a true raconteur in the world of professional wrestling. This man has shared the ring with a who's who of talent that ranges from Kenny Sodbuster Jay to Nikolai Volkov to Chris Hero. A wrestler, manager, commentator, and a trainer who's contributed essays to wrestling publications as well as wrestled in well over 2,000 matches. With 20 years of experience, he is a true renaissance man with unlimited knowledge. Ladies and gentlemen, I am speaking of the incomparable Derek St. Holmes Esquire. Derek, how are you doing today? I am fine. Good afternoon, Jay. Good to see you. So today, we are going to be talking about an individual who Paul Bosch described as an exigious individual. Is that right? Exigious? Yes, that's right. Um, Jack Briscoe said he was quite the character. Yes, I believe he said he was out of a Noel Coward play. And Ole Anderson said he was a <laughs> conniving charlatan. Yes, good old Ole. Uh, and, and all of these gentlemen, correct. Very good. And they are speaking, of course, of the one, the only... My boy. <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I, I had to hear it. James E. Barnett. Yes, Mr. Jim Barnett, the godfather of professional wrestling. Uh, Secretary Treasurer of the NWA for several years, in the middle of some of the greatest promotional wars in the business, and strangely enough, we're just going to jump right into it, openly gay in a macho profession. I always thought that was uh, fascinating that uh, he was out, and uh, he was proud of it, and never questioned it. I'm sure jokes were made. Oh, absolutely. And we'll get to that. I mean, sure. obviously, uh, one of the most powerful people in the NWA, but not allowed to become the NWA president because well, how would that look if one of them was, was our leader and stuff like that? I mean, so we're dealing with very outmoded, outmoded ways of thinking about alternative lifestyles, if they're even called alternative anymore. But we just want to get over that fact. Jim Barnett was a homosexual man enjoying life. So let's just get past that and, and keep on moving with his effects on the wrestling industry. That sounds great to me. Where do you want to start? Well, Jim was born <coughs> born in Oklahoma City in 1924. Uh, there's some question. Uh, the legend of Jim Barnett has him as a very affluent man, uh, living the fine arts and everything. There's some question if his money came from the old school or if it was just a made-up illusion that he crafted. Uh, from what I can tell, his father was actually a haberdasher, which I love, which meant he sells men's clothes. Yes. Um, how you doing, Marion Fontaine? But 
grew up in the Oklahoma City area in the 20s. I have heard read one rumor that he was kicked out of the family house for trying his sister's dress on. Okay. Which could again, uh, you're dealing with you know somebody in the 20s and 30s leading a sheltered lifestyle. There's very few avenues for expression and something like that. So this story could be true, could be false. Gotcha. I don't and know, so, just like anything in wrestling. But family-wise, he was the first person in his family to get involved in professional wrestling. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, there was a rumor. He liked to say that he went to Harvard. And graduated from there, but uh, a check of the school's records do not show any sort of attendance. Uh, it was verified that he received a Master's of Business from the University of Chicago in 1947. Now, the story goes, uh, to celebrate his graduation, he went out and bought one of these new things called a TV, or a television set. <laughs> right. You know, got the moving pictures. The picture, proper name for the time. The moving pictures at home. Saw professional wrestling, uh, Fred Kohler's deal out of Chicago, out of the Marigold Arena, and just loved it, so he went out and bought a wrestling magazine. Looked through the magazine, didn't really like its format or what was said on it, uh, sent a letter to the editor saying, hey, I've got some great ideas, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this. Received a response, if you think you can do better, come on in, we need the help. So they actually said, listen, kid, you think you got the ideas, come on in. Yeah, which is kind of goes against what we know, what we've talked about in the past, with it being such a guarded industry. Well, he was only would have only been in charge of the publicity. Now, wrestling magazines at the time existed as a a trumpet to or a, a conduit to get the promotion to get its message out to the streets. Okay. So it was all you didn't have to be on the inside. You just had to be able to hey, we're gonna we're gonna feature this person this month, write up a story, try and get an interview, everything like that. So he came in. Uh, instantly became the editor. I believe it was called Wrestling As You Like It. There's still uh, issues available on eBay if you want to go find them. Find oh, so them you can actually acquire. Oh old yeah, it was you know it was an old time wrestling you know editor James and Barnett. What a great name by the way, Wrestling As You Like Wrestling It. Wrestling As You Like It. I yes. love it. Um, from there, went on to become the right hand of Fred Kohler, who was the man that owned the the big Chicago promotion and had the television show out of the Marigold Arena. That was broadcast over half of the country on the Dumont Network. So from this, that's where Barnett was able to learn the intricacies of running running a promotion. Uh, wasn't, you know, was never a wrestler, was never in the ring, but learned what you needed to do, who you needed to appease in order to get your your product going. Combined that with his business knowledge, he was very keen to improve Fred Kohler's business so he could fatten his pocket as well. Sure. Yeah. That's pretty good, actually. That's interesting to hear somebody coming in from uh, outside, from a different area, a different right. spot, or different career path, and bringing it in and then applying their trade or applying their craft into a different business like that. Right. So from there, he was able to develop the television contracts um, for the people that were featured on the Dumont Network, such as Vern Gagne, Pat O'Connor, Hans Schmidt. And so if any other promoter wanted to use those wrestlers that were seen on the contract, he got a piece of that. Okay. So that was the start of uh, getting his empire put together there. Now, do you know money-wise, I mean, uh, what something like that would be as far as what kind of piece, what kind of cut, how much, how much were wrestlers being paid at that point? Uh, it's, it's so hard to figure you're catching me off guard. I don't have an exact figure for you, but it's deceptive because you have to factor in inflation so much. Sure. So Ganya would have made a hundred thousand dollars 
1949, which could be what a couple million today. Right, right. And of the, well, that's what Ganya made. So if you figure Barnett made what 15, 20% of that and had four or five other people under retainer, he was taking home a nice cent of coin, too. So he had his guys that were under the retainer that, that were working with him, and he was just taking a percentage off of, I, I don't want to say, I mean, television stars are just stars, some of the bigger names, right? Right, Okay. right. But he was taking that. He was also uh, farming, the, farming the show out. He was part owner of the promotion, so any show that they ran, he got a piece of. You know, it was all, again had a master's in business, so he knew where to focus the revenue streams in order to get his stuff on there. Um, after the Dumont Network goes down, oh, let's just go into some of the things he learned from, I'm checking, jumping ahead in my notes here. Sure. It's, just, it's, an, it, it's an exciting topic, and I can't wait till we get into the meat <laughs> of it. Uh, the, the big things Barnett learned and how to uh, focus a wrestling business, how to piece off everyone. Now, piecing off is an old carny term where you get your money at the end of the night, and then you got to pay out the shill, you've got to pay out the stand owner, you've got to pay out, so that's called piecing off. So Barnett was able to piece everybody off down from the local cops that did security at the event to judges in that area to state representatives to senators. You know, and that was all to protect his interests. You know, he'd wine them and dine them and take them to the, the the fine arts and everything. And well, maybe maybe you can see my way on this this issue and stuff like that. You know, that's my Barnett. That's he was a good Barnett. Well, he wasn't so much Truman Capote as something else. Uh, one thing Barnett liked to say was, "I only deal with kings, prime ministers, and dictators." So he always went to the top of the chain to make sure that that influence would be felt anywhere down. Right. Um. Was very good at playing both sides against the middle. Like he would make a deal with somebody and then make a secret deal with their enemy and try and keep in contact with both of them. Um, very dependent on people not talking to each other. Like if you and I and our, our electrician Carl here. Kyle. I was calling him Carl to protect his identity. Oh. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> So suddenly Kyle notices you aren't paying him enough for the, like, short a little bit on the, the rental for the equipment here. And you tell me, God, that Kyle's getting on my nerves. And he's telling me, oh, that Jay isn't, isn't coming across. I'm like, well, just, boys, let me take care of it. Just don't talk to him. I'll talk to him, and we'll take care of everything there. Find out later I've got my hand in both your pockets, and I'm the one that's taking the rental fee that's missing. Right. Which is a lot of times what happened to Barnett. Uh, the real big thing that Jim Barnett was able to develop and that really helped him in the business, again, wasn't a booker but could recognize talent. He could see somebody and say, that's going to be your star right there. Now uh, what? How, just an just, innate ability. Okay, sure. And happened several times over the years. Um, we can get into that story more later with the different things that we'll go through. But, yeah, that was his big thing. He could, he could just spot the talent. Okay, so, starts off with the Dumont Network. 61-62, he buys in or owns pieces of Detroit, Indianapolis, and Louisville, uh, which he bought from the existing promoters that happened at that time. So he's got a piece of all of these different territories, so he's getting money from there. Uh, the story goes, he gets out of Detroit, sells that the Detroit territory to Sheik for $50,000. So the Sheik thinks he owns everything here. Jumping ahead, when... TBS goes national and they start running tours in these areas. 
suddenly the sheik starts crying saying, hey, I bought this for 50 grand. I bought it fair and square. This is my territory. That's when Jim just said, well, sorry, Ed. This is a national television show. It's just going to go everywhere. Oh, right, so, right, right. Got that. Uh, winds up getting frozen out of Indianapolis when Dick the Bruiser and uh, Wilbur Snyder decide to run because Dick the Bruiser's mother was very politically connected. So when Dick decided he wanted to run, he called his mom, and his mom got all the other licenses canceled. And that's how Dick the Bruiser took over Indianapolis. I'm fighting every urge to ask, do you think that Barnett liked Dick? Uh, <laughs> sorry. I, I know you're. I know you're trying to. I was try- trying I just, to trying to make a lowbrow joke. I, you but, know, I'm sorry. But we're gonna go into 1963. I'm sorry, listeners. I had to. No, I had no go, choice. We're gonna go into 1963 in Louisville. There's an issue there. The University of Kentucky. There's a football scandal at the time that refers to the Thin Thirty. Um, they had a coach in that area at the University of Kentucky that was very draconian on his players. He was going to make the toughest people, and it's just, it's a horrible, 80 people started the camp, only 30 people were left. There was investigations uh, for a point-shaving scandal. Okay, so with this investigation of the point-shaving, it comes out that a lot of the university athletes have been invited to parties off campus by a very rich man and a certain friend of his that want the boys to come over and party and give them food and gifts and there's strippers there and everything's great. But then as the party winds down, suddenly the the question changes and it's, hey, do you want to go to this back room with me and we can talk about perhaps some more gifts for you at the university and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Turns out Jim Barnett is in Louisville at this time. He's holding these parties and inviting the athletes to come over and relax and hopefully engage in sexual practices with him. Now, we want to point out this wasn't necessarily predatory. Nobody was drugged. These were all adult men making informed choices on their own. They knew what was going on, but for whatever reason, being starved out of the university or whatever, they chose to go on with this. Did Barnett I mean, help get any of their feet in the door for wrestling or was it just was this two completely separate things? At two this completely point? separate things. He just he enjoyed athletes. Let's just leave again. Sure. Keep keep the conversation civil. Right. Uh incidentally Jim Barnett far from the only gay man involved in professional wrestling. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's you can't I just I don't see it as an issue anymore because you can't judge it on that merit anymore, especially in today's climate. It's like, okay, somebody's gay. Big deal. Right. It's all a matter of are they using their influence to, you know, a sexual harassment type deal. But anyway, so Jim Barnett has this thing. He likes he likes athletes. So they come over, they do whatever. They get a watch. They get use of a car for a week. Jim Barnett has a certain friend that's an actor in Hollywood that likes to visit these parties by the name of Rock Hudson. So, I've heard of him. Yes. So, I mean, this was all an open secret along, you know, a long time like that. Yeah. So, 1963, University of Kentucky involved in a point-shaving scandal. They investigate that scandal. The stories of these parties come to light. Suddenly, Jim Barnett has to leave town. Where does he go? Australia. Australia. I was just going to say he heads to Australia. 1964, Australia. I feel we should have that kookaburra noise in the background. That or, a, or a didgeridoo. Right, right. What else do we got from Australia? Don't say shrimp on the Barbie. 
That's not a knife. Okay, fair enough. Jim Barnett assumes control over the Australia promotion. I believe the pre- previous promoter was named Dick Lean, who's mentioned in Luthez's book, Hooker. But if I remember correctly from what I've yeah, read because, up on... Yeah, because um, you were there. Because I was there. What I remember correctly from that point, hanging out with Paul Hogan. Oh, okay. And, uh, Yahoo Serious. Oh, yeah. I, um, I Incidentally, I never really understood the theory of relativity until it was explained in that Yahoo Serious movie. Yeah. Sorry. No, I know. Okay. I, um, so... From what I've understood, too, though, is that wrestling wasn't, uh, when you're in Australia at that point, wrestling would have been the main event on a card that was basically boxing lower card matches in the main event that then would be wrestling. And he looked, when uh, Barnett came in, he ended up looking to make wrestling its sole entity as and separate it from the boxing Yes, that's true, but there were also smaller clubs available. What Barnett did was essentially make the first national promotion. So oh, you know, okay. almost a blueprint for what they did in the United States because the major cities in Australia are so far apart from each other, it was impractical to drive. Right, they'd have to fly everywhere. So Barnett uh, worked a deal with one of the airlines to have them be a sponsor. So all of the wrestlers had a dress code. They had to wear three-piece suits unless it was an accepted part of their gimmick that they didn't, you know, like Haystack Calhoun or somebody like that. Uh, So all the wrestlers had to dress up and look nice, but they got reduced airfare on all these flights. Okay. So that that was the big thing. And, you know, he paid well. People came in. You got flown everywhere. It was it was a very top notch, top notch. And you're looking at like uh, a tour that was going a month, two months. Is that what? Yeah. Yeah. Like he would hit all the big tours monthly and then, you know, have some little towns just to keep the boys in work. Now. So when he went to Australia, he didn't just go by himself. He went with Johnny Doyle, Johnny Doyle, who was out of the California area. Do you know how, what, where, how those two were connected? Uh, I think just through the promotional. I don't, I don't have background on that. Okay. Sorry about that. No problem. We should have checked. notes. And also, um, from what I, I was reading up on, Barnett had tried to start roller derby in Australia as well. Oh, I could see it. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. So it was not only it was not only was it him doing the wrestling, but it was also him trying to start roller derby. But oh. that one it didn't go over. Right. I, I, it's very easy across promotion, especially at that time. They were both scripted sports. Um, obviously, roller derby, the current incarnation, has evolved into a legitimate sport that's very different from the product that was being put off then. But I can also understand it would be hard to pull a decent team from the Australian population at the time. Bunch of convicts. <laughs> right, exactly. So, first national promotion. Uh, what were they called? World Championship Wrestling. Again, that uh, similar wrestling, just repeating the names. I mean. Well, and this was also part of his marketing because what Barnett did was all of the locals, with the exception of two, I believe Larry O'Day and one other, possibly Mario Miliano, who just passed away, uh, all of the Australians were used as jobbers, and it was just a constant rotation of foreign talent coming in for different tours. Right, right. Um, Very similar to the WWF or WWWF formula of just cycling in heels to put against their challenger. Hey, one big thing we forgot back in Chicago, Yes. Uh, especially when he bought into the Detroit and Indianapolis territories, wrestling in Chicago was broadcast from the Marigold Arena. So that was a major show. But 
when Barnett went into these other areas, he also knew he couldn't show that big show all the time. So he was actually the one that's credited with the invention of TV studio wrestling. Right. Where you put two or three rows of chairs and one camera. There's your ring. Very cheap entertainment. But he's the one that's credited with the, oh, let's just do this. And we can use this as a vehicle to sell the big show. Okay. So essentially, you know, spending a nickel to make a dime. Right. Right. And it worked. I mean, yeah, it worked. And and that formula, everybody that came out of that Barnett school, a la Ganya and Watts and all these other ones, used that same formula in order to present it. I mean, it was like uh, they knew how all the parts went together and how it had to be presented. You had to have this little show and then you put two, you know, you never put two stars against each other. You just have them talk and you have to pay big money to see them. Now, angles were still done on TV. Ganya was very sparse with his angles. He would do one or two a year to key up certain cards, but then you had other shows like Memphis or whatever that it was constantly angle, angle, angle. Do you know, and this is a little bit of an aside, uh, just because you brought this up, have you ever talked to anybody or do you know anybody that ever attended a studio wrestling taping? Like an AWA or an NWA or a Georgia Championship Wrestling? Uh, Not outside of people like Mick Karch. Okay. Or something like that, that. I mean, talk about something that to me seems, and as a child, and seems so totally unattainable was being the studio audience. Right. Especially at, in a lot of places, tickets were free right. or they just let you in, but you had to be there in order to get it because they just needed to fill out the crowd to shill whatever was going on. Right. I just think that to me as a child, I just remember watching the AWA and thinking to myself, where are like where are yes, these exactly. people? Yes, exactly. Where, where is the studio? Is, and I would ask my dad, "What can we go?" And he's like, "I don't know where that is." Yeah, I would embarrass my dad with questions like that. And too. I don't even think they ever really full. I, mean, I think uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling might have advertised it, but I don't think AWA technically ever advertised where they were. Well, no, they didn't want to advertise the television show because that show was cycled everywhere. So they wanted you to think that that was local for wherever that was going. If there is any of but our listeners, but in the though, in the Minnesota area, it would be advertised. Hey, TV taping, you know, come on down to. I, it was at the Calhoun Beach Hotel, and then Ganya bought his own studio out in the outskirts. Oh, okay, yeah. So, and I always uh, being from Milwaukee, I just again not knowing any better, always just thought it was in some building somewhere in Milwaukee, and that right. my dad could drive me around town just trying to find it. WVTV Studio. It's got to be. It's got to be somewhere. But seriously, if there's any listeners out there that attended any of these studio tapings, please get in contact with us. I would love yes. to hear about it. That would be just absolutely amazing. We'll give you an episode. So Australia, use, use the natives of Jobber as, not, as Jobbers. So some of the names coming in, the imported stars, you had your killer Kowalski, Ray Stevens, King Curtis Ikea, Dominic DiNucci, Mark Lewin, Billy Robinson, Carl Gotch, San Martino, Pepper Gomez, Gorilla Monsoon. Just, I mean, it's really a who's who. You miss Bulldog Bob Brower. Oh, yes. Brower power. Brower power. Absolutely. Um, another one. But again, a lot of great names yeah. working in the States, coming out there for a couple months, doing their thing, and then coming right back, making great money. Right. And this is where Barnett had his, still had his fingers in the things. <laughs> still had his fingers and stuff back home. Thank you. Uh, but he was able to pick and choose these guys, and Australia was known as one of the best gigs in wrestling at the time because, again, you were carted in, you were flown everywhere, you got a food allowance. You know, Jim Barnett took care of you, but he expected you to work hard. Um, 
he also was subject to his own little fits of whimsy in uh, Pat Barrett's book, Everybody Down Here Hates Me. He tells the story of he was there when Haystack Calhoun came in, and it was funny seeing this 601-pound man waddle his way down the airport with this little flitting effeminate gentleman behind him saying, oh, you're just going to have so much fun here. It's going to be great. And then six weeks later, he was there when Wahoo McDaniel came in. It's like, Chief, I'm so glad you're here. That 601-pound piece of shit has been killing my territory. <laughs> Pat, you, come here. Get him all the cunt he can use right here because this is going to be our next star. Oh, you know. So it was yeah. just cycling through talent like that. Uh, also expected his people to behave in a certain manner, you know, dress a certain code. Brought in Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch as the Texas Outlaws, who for whatever reason at the time loved to wear cut-off Daisy Dukes and the like the half shirts that are cut oh, off yeah. to show your belly. And they hung out in the, the randy area of town, and somebody saw them and said, you guys better clean up your act before Barnett sees you. And they're like, ah, we don't have to worry about that three-letter word for homosexual gentlemen. And uh, next time Barnett sees them, it's like, oh, you guys are so beautiful like that. And they were on the next plane home. Oh, wow. Yeah, just boom. You got to go. Now, I think that um, how trend-setting that is, now we're looking at sports like the NFL or NBA. Um, I don't watch baseball, so I don't know. But uh, these dress codes that are in place now for a lot of uh, professional sports, and you think how Barnett was kind of ahead of his time in what he was doing. Well, he was protecting his business. He's like, I... He knew very well that there's a certain amount of leeway that you have to exercise with professional wrestlers because, in my personal experience, wrestlers will screw up any deal they're given, no matter how good it's, no matter how good it is. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? So he he knew that would happen. So he wanted his boys. He set the bar very high because he wanted to protect his sponsorships. He didn't want any crap with the airlines. You know, he had all of this set up, and everybody pieced off, and everybody was doing him favors. So ran this thing. It was incredible until I believe the tax system, the something about the taxes changed in about 74. Right. Well, in 69, Johnny Doyle died. Right. And Barnett took complete control at that point. Uh, they ran smoothly until 1974. Business was up. Everything was great. And then business started to tail off because of the government. Right. Uh, previously, you know, it was kind of like a Republican government. Everything was run fine. And then the labor government took over. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to inject an Australian into the business. You couldn't be a foreigner owning a business in Australia and not have an Australian also as an owner, part owner. Right. Similar to the CanCon in, in yes. Canadian television. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so they ended up giving him uh, a couple Australian guys and he gave each of them 5%. Yeah. He wasn't very happy. with Not that. at all. Uh, so wound up selling the promotion, I believe, to the Welch family out of Tennessee, but uh, was very specific about what he did. Uh, the old Carney term is called burning the lot that he just went through and it was all cage matches and death matches and all just blew off all of his feuds and didn't leave anything for the people behind. Oh, just, wow. just blew off everything and said, we're going to take as much money as we can. And boom, sets back to the United States. Why? So he can deal with the gunkle problem. Yes, as we remember from last week. Um, before we get, get to that, though, I just want to uh, quickly ask, so does the talent follow him too? Uh, the, if there's uh, you know, international talent coming in, when Barnett leaves, is he just leaving a promotion that now is just sitting there with, Australian 
wrestlers? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then it's their problem. Yes. You guys come on in and you book the talent to bring it over. That's not my job. Exactly. Nobody's mid-tour or anything like that. He wraps up everybody's tour. Yep. Takes everybody home. It's like, okay, guys, have fun with it. Here's the keys. Wow. That's awesome. When Teo Erat died at the age of 91 in May of 2012, the news was slow to reach the boxing and wrestling fans who had marveled at his mastery over the years. Where video of John Tolis throwing the dreaded Monzo's powder into the eyes of Freddie Blassie in Los Angeles does not exist, the fame angle was caught for all eternity in Erat's lens. Teo was the staff photographer at the Grand Olympic Auditorium, a massive concrete sports arena in downtown Los Angeles. During his tenure, Teo documented all of the mayhem of the boxing matches and the professional wrestling that went on inside the walls of the Olympic. Eret was born July 7, 1920 in Mannheim, Germany. Drafted into the German Navy during World War II, he lost a finger while serving and was interred in a prisoner of war camp in Italy. In 1952, Teo and his wife Elsbeth made their way to the United States from Germany, arriving in South Dakota and subsequently fleeing south to the warmer climate of LA a year later. A jack of all trades, Eret took many jobs as a mechanic until he saved enough money to buy himself a quality camera to try his hand at photography, a skill he had learned in Germany from an uncle. He furthered his education at a Montessori school of photography and in 1963, he opened his own studio on Sunset Boulevard in Echo Park. He solicited commercial shoots in the public relations world, but it was his shooting of boxing matches at the Olympic where he rose to prominence. One of the few female promoters in the country, Eileen Eaton, was the face of the Olympic, and the cards there were among the best at the time. The crowds at her shows were often filled with Hollywood celebrities. Eret did the publicity photos for the programs and shot pictures at ringside. Soon his photos would be appearing in national boxing magazines. In 1964, Eret began working with the Olympics pro wrestling events, which were run by Eaton's son, Mike LaBelle. Olympic Auditorium Wrestling publicist Jeff Walton convinced the Los Angeles promoter Mike LaBelle to use more of Eret's photos. As the years went by, I talked Mike into using Teo's material as he was dependable, and if we needed a certain shot for TV, we knew Teo could capture it, reflected Walton. When my sons were born, Teo was there to take beautiful photos, which I still have in my home to this day. Teo was on the Olympic payroll, but had permission to do whatever he wanted with the photos because he paid for all of his own materials, said historian Steve Yohe. So another source of income was selling his work to the wrestling magazines. Teo and his Roloflex camera chronicled every aspect of the scene, the press conferences held to announce the bouts, the fighters' training regimens at the local gyms, the Main Street gym being the most prominent, the weigh-ins, the portraits that were used to publicize the bouts, the head-jarring action inside the ring, and the rowdy crowds that came on to cheer their favorites. It also certainly helped that Eret had earned the trust of the wrestlers and the bookers and was often let in on finishes and the timing of the bouts. Eret was also responsible for teaching Freddie Blassie how to properly pose for publicity shots. I taught Blassie to look off in the distance and point. Just point. Never look at the camera directly, but tell them to glance diagonally in a straight line away from your lens. Eret once told one of his students who could also be found shooting at ringside, that kind of posing creates depth and wonder. And with someone doing a crazy act like Sheik or Pampero Furpo, you really don't have to tell them what to do. They know what they're doing for the character. 
In the 1970s and 80s, Teo's name was synonymous with the LA boxing and wrestling. Teo's works were always works of art, said Eaton, summing up what made Eret so great. Teo was best known for his use of medium format equipment, particularly 120 size film, said fellow photographer Paul Westbrook. His pictures were always quite incredibly detailed. He was a true photographer as he developed and printed his own pictures at his studio. He captured the essence of action and had a special realism to his posed pictures, some of which he took in his studio. Only one other sports photographer had a special look to his photos, Canada's Tony Lanza. Teo preferred available light photography, but excelled at flash photography, which presented other problems. He used special lighting setups for the posed pictures, giving them almost a 3D effect. It was his trademark. Though Eret took photos of all the wrestling greats, Blassie, Tolos, Andre the Giant, Pepper Gomez, Mil Mascaris, and the Destroyer, just to name a few, many fans may better remember Eret's foray into the controversial photography subject of apartment wrestling. Every bit as important as covering LA wrestling was Teo's contribution to Victory Sports of his vast array of bikini and nude apartment house wrestling photos, recalled California wrestler Kurt Brown. The subject was a series of pictorials featured towards the back of wrestling magazines in the mid to late 70s. Photos contained two buxom women clad solely in bikinis grappling over some unknown conflict. The pictures were notoriously unpopular with the wrestlers, who were upset having to share the cover with the perceived softcore pornography. Conversely, the same wrestlers who loudly complained had no trouble trying their hardest to tag along on one of the salacious photo shoots. A bona fide hit, apartment wrestling photos graced the pages and caused an incredible boost in sales for the Sports Review Wrestling magazine. Every one of us teenage newsletter fans back in the 70s were the same. We would shake our heads and gripe about these pornographic photos that were polluting the pages of wrestling magazines. This lasted until we were out of earshot of one another, out of eyesight of any family members, and then we would, very politely, salivate all over the pages of the Hot Mamas in Condo Combat. Exquisite Mayhem, a coffee table book that celebrates Eret's apartment wrestling photos, as well as his more traditional grappling shots, was released in 2001 and is still available wherever fine books are sold. So, okay, so now Barnett's back on U.S. soil. Dun, 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 dun. Where do we go from there? Uh, we're going to the theater tonight, my boy. <laughs> that never gets old. No, I just gotta no say, it doesn't. It never gets old. Uh, one of the most imitated people in professional wrestling, second only to Stu Hart. I can say whenever I'm on a show with a name that would have been around, at that area, around in that era, I always ask them to do a Jim Barnett impression. Everybody has done one except for Abdullah the Butcher. Abdullah the Butcher, big star in the Atlanta area yes. at that time under Jim Barnett because, again, he could recognize the talent. So Barnett's brought in for the Gunkel problem. Uh, in the book Chokehold by Jim Wilson, he goes into something that allegedly happened in the tail end of the Australia time that led into his time with the Gunkel problem in that he cl Jim Wilson claims he was brought on a tour of Australia and Jim Barnett liked him because he was an athlete. Claimed Jim Barnett made a proposition to him. Jim Wilson turned it down. Suddenly his paydays were cut in half and his tour was cut short. 
claims he was blackballed because he wouldn't go to bed with a with a homosexual promoter. Uh, maybe happened, maybe didn't. Since that time, it has come out from numerous sources, either everybody's cooperating or they legitimately don't know, claim that Barnett never, well-known he was gay, but never crossed the line for wrestlers. He liked football players. Oh, really? Yeah, you know, f- fair enough. You know, right. Everybody's got their thing. But several people in the know said, no, Barnett was well-known to be gay, but never, like, it wasn't a big thing. He did not hit on wrestlers and did not have a casting couch type. Which maybe, I mean, essentially maybe that, I'm not trying to give him tons and crazy credit for being a businessman in the sense, but I guess you could say it's pretty impressive to not mix that business and pleasure. You don't shit where you eat. That's right. Or pen in the company ink, however, you know, yes. depending on what rating this podcast gets. You've already said cunt. Oh, fair, well, it was a quote, so it was okay. Um, going back to Jim Wilson, claims he was blackballed because of this occurrence here. Now, the concept of blackballing is very interesting in that there's been several times where, oh, you're going to be blackballed, this, that, and the other thing. However, if people were genuinely talented, they were going to get booked. Oh, okay. Ernie Ladd was blackballed because he stood up to promoters, but still got booked because, well, I know you've got heat with them and them, but I know you can draw me money, so I will take you in. So the blackball was really only effective against middle to lower talent. No offense to anybody. I mean, you could all you could all kick my ass probably now, but right. You know, it was lower and middle talent that had to worry about the blackball because. But that's like any. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, with the exception, I guess, of like the McCarthyism and, uh, uh-huh. you know, Hollywood at that point, um, way back when, uh, and the Red Scare. But I think that that pretty much goes with anything. When, if you're a big enough talent or a big, big enough recognizable money draw, right. no matter what the business is, mm-hmm. you're still going to find work. Exactly. Exactly. And that was, that was the real problem that Jim Wilson had is he, was was just not good. I mean, he's, what are you talking about? He was promised the, the NWA championship. Well, again, this is the whole. <laughs> wink, I, I'm, wink. Yeah, I'm pretty sure anybody that was brought into the business is like, hey, got a big future for you. Could be looking at that title for you. Oh, great. He just so, took it literally. Yeah, but the, it was even Ray Gunkel. It wasn't Barnett that said that. It was Gunkel that you know trying to recruit him, saying, hey, you know, maybe we could work this in. So suddenly Wilson claims, oh. I was promised the title. It's like, no, again, search up old IWA footage. He's on there. Not very good. Right. Just, just, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but just not very good. So Jim Wilson claimed the black ball. Um, Oh, and it also came out that it wasn't the proposition that caused him to get pulled off the tour. It was the fact that he was having an affair with a stewardess at the airline that was one of the one of the sponsors. Right. So that was Jim Barnett's reason. So who knows what's really real. Right. Again, it's wrestling, so they're both probably true and both probably more scummy than we can imagine. Right. Uh, Jared comes in, or I'm sorry, um, Barnett comes in, starts dealing with the Gunkel problem. We discussed last week how he was able to get the machine moving again, stuff like that. Several stories about his time there. Uh, again, not a booker, wanted to bring in Jerry Jarrett to book Atlanta for a while. Uh, Jarrett had received note about this. This is in his book, Best of Times, from Mark James, also a good author. Buy anything from Mark James. 
goes to talk to Jarrett. Well, Jarrett knows Barnett is coming in with Buddy Fuller. He's at his house in Hendersonville, Tennessee with his wife. Knows there's only a certain amount of time. Barnett shows up with Fuller. Uh, Fuller and Jarrett go into the other room. They expect Barnett to follow them. But no, Barnett starts talking with Jarrett's wife, Deborah, about art and clothing and the fine things and everything like that. All of a sudden, Jarrett notices that the clock's getting down and Barnett's got to hit his plane. So he walks in and says, hey, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, do we have some business to discuss? And Barnett says, well... I was coming here to ask you to be my booker, but I can understand with a wife like this why you wouldn't want to leave. Could we work up a remote deal? You don't have to be in the office every day as long as you can draw people for me in Atlanta. And so wow. he, he agreed to a remote booking deal off of that. How great. But it was just the whole deal that out of all that time, he didn't spend any time talking to Jarrett. It was talking to his wife. Sure. About the finer things. So didn't even talk about wrestling. Can I just, I just want to interject one thing here that I think is great. One of my favorite uh, Jim Barnett quotes. Um, when uh, Jim Barnett came in and he, he got 38% of the um, promotion, he paid uh, $268,000 for it. And when they asked him about it, he said, and I can't do the voice, so I'm just going to read it straight up. He said, I paid cash. Now you should know, no one buys wrestling promotions. They just take them. I think that's a great quote. Well, Barnett was very good in that, in like his deal with Gunkel, and he helped broker the deal between Fritz von Erich and I believe it was Ed McLemore, that you don't want to crush your enemies because that leaves them without face. So you give them a token payment to show that you bought them out. Oh, okay. But I mean, we all know which way it was going, but no, to save face, I paid 50 grand for this promotion or whatever. Okay, yeah. So different stories about Barnett as an owner at this time. Uh, he would come in an hour before showtime at the Atlanta Auditorium for a pep talk with all of his, all of his stars. He'd just walk in. I don't see wrestlers. I just see stars in here. And he would actually ask for a fictional rat report among the boys. So they, <laughs> they would come up and act out and uh, give a report on the different ladies that they had met that week and let everybody know what was going on. That's super funny. Um, incidentally, the thought at that time, and it was explained very good in Oli's book, and this gets quite off color, is if you're going to screw one rat, you got to screw them all. You can't have favorites, and you have to share with everybody else because you have to make sure that they're out there buying tickets. And you, so if you're gonna if you're gonna live that life, you have to live it a hundred percent. Ah, that's so funny. Different world. Yeah, different world. All for the business. Yep, all for the business. Barnett would look out the curtain, and it would be sold out. He's like, "How boring! Another sellout." And he'd turn around and walk out and be done for the night. Uh, also known for being very moody in that. Some nights it would be, you know, the crowd would be half full and he would be just so happy. And then some nights it would be sold out and he would just go off on a tear about something. Really? Uh, there's a good story about, and I've heard it repeated a few different, a few different ways, a few different places. But Jim Barnett was giving a speech saying to the boys saying next week, uh, next week we're going to bring in the world champion. So it's going to affect your paydays because we have to pay 10% to the NWA. And somebody, rumored to be Frank Morrell, stands up and says, by the looks of my check, it looks like the champion's already been here a month. <laughs> and Jim Barnett said, oh, isn't that funny? Turns to Ole Anderson. Ole, fire him. Wow. Ole just says, sorry, Frank, got to let you go. And that's you, that. You know how it goes. Wow, yeah. that's so great. Um, then there were also rumors of 
Now remember how this is set up. You have the main booking office, and then if a wrestler goes somewhere else, that they that promotion would send money back to the main booking office, and the wrestler would be paid out of that. Uh, there was some consternation among the boys because they would say, "Hey, I know I was supposed to receive six hundred dollars, but I only got four hundred. And this one wrestler went to Barnett and said, hey, I got shorted on my check. And Jim said, oh, you know how that guy is. Here's $200 out of my pocket. Don't worry about it. I'll talk to him. Finally, later, this, this wrestler went back and talked to the other promoter. And the other promoter pulled out his booking sheet saying, no, look, I sent back $600 for you and everybody else in that match. Oh, wow. And all of a sudden they realized that the house was cut back or the pay was cut back for all four of these guys. So there's $800 that went somewhere else. But, oh, Jim reimbursed the one guy out of his pocket. Because he was the one guy to speak. Yeah. Ah, so, very nice. So Again, that's where it all happens. A, a, a gentleman scumbag. Yeah. Um, the gentleman part, a big favorite of the Carters at the time, because, yes. you know, they were very powerful in Georgia, was uh, appointed to the National Council of the Arts in 1980 by President Jimmy Carter. Um, at Jimmy Carter's inauguration, Jim Barnett can be seen sitting in the photo but probably paid to get that seat right, or whatever. Right. Uh, Jim Barnett was also rumored to be the one that paid to get the Wrestling 2 Jimmy Carter picture taken. Oh, sure. So we've talked about Jim Barnett going into people's pockets. Now, uh, let's see. what The other things he's doing at this time, he's uh, secretary-treasurer of the NWA. Uh, we said before he's taking the notes for the meetings and making sure nothing incriminating gets in the meetings. When Sam Muchnick was president of the NWA, one of the jobs of the president was to book the NWA champion. So if you wanted dates on the champion, that's who you contacted. Once Muchnick sat down and it went to Fritz von Erich or Eddie Graham or whoever, they didn't want to be bothered with it. So Jim Barnett became the person that you would contact to book the champion. Oh, okay. So Harley's got a bunch of stories about him. Flair's got a bunch of stories about him. The big thing that changed, though, when Muchnick was booking the champion, he was a big believer that no matter what happened, the champion had to come out being the superior one at the end. Right. So you could have all sorts of matches, but at the end, the champion was the one getting his hand raised. And he was very adamant about protecting that. Once Barnett took over, Barnett just wanted the 3% for booking the champion, so he didn't care if it was count out disqualification over the top rope so the the champion went from being a dominant force to more of a cowardly going to cheat all the time force, oh. which led to a lot of the dusty finishes right. and everything like that so that's where that control lessened when barnett took over it's funny too when you think about the business and you think about um i don't say alternate timelines but you think of just the timeline of wrestling and you think of dominoes falling over and like you said the Jim Jim Barnett happens, which leads to dusty finishes, which leads to killing of towns, which leads to the deluding mm -hmm. of champions, which to, and you just you can see it's like a tidal wave of things that happen. And for as much uh, nice things that he's done or th good things that he's done for the business or things that he's come through with that his stars he's created and whatnot, there's still that one little chink in the armor, that one little hiccup or slip up and you can see how the repercussions mm -hmm. follow that through the history of wrestling well, agreed uh i agree and especially now 
that you don't have the time for the builds or to develop storylines because you are trying to get to that next show, trying to get to that next pay-per-view, trying to get to that next commercial break. Right, right. It, again, don't want to say back in my day, so this isn't the time for <laughs> it, but that's, that's one thing that happens. Um, another story that we want to address with Jim Barnett as the owner and booker of the champion is the Tommy Rich title switch. Now, we kind of talked about this on the Battle for Atlanta episode. The rumor was Tommy Rich got his very abbreviated title reign because he allowed Jim Barnett to perform a favor on him. Right. That's the rumor. Uh, since then, has been discounted by virtually everybody that's still around that's able to remember the time periods. Right. It's just done to try and shock the houses and make you believe anything can happen and often did. Right. You know, I still love the whole thought of race being approached with this thing saying if you think it's going to last more than a few days you got another thing coming. <laughs> right no absolutely so. well i think too i i mean it's a smart business move in the sense to if you want to pop that town um i mean albeit maybe temporarily but still you just pop it and like you said it's that anything can happen anytime yeah, you have we've to make it go. that don't miss it we've got to see it yeah whereas now the house show is looked at as kind of the harlem globetrotters touring right. it's like oh you're just going to go see the stars right. but nothing's going to happen unless the cameras are there right. and it, I, it, I always view it more as just like now it's like almost like a merchandise grab like oh yes absolutely that's the when when the big show comes through that's your chance to go and get the new t-shirts exactly yeah so so that's that so things are going great in the atlanta area georgia championship wrestling till about 1982 1983 when Ole starts taking over and decides to start chasing his money to make sure he's getting his percentage. He's the one that digs in and discovers a lot of inconsistencies about the Jim Barnett illusion. Okay. Um, he claims in his book that Barnett would leave like stock notes just, just laying around his office, like sell 10,000 shares of AT&T at 1.75, <laughs> you know, just, just to create the illusion. But That's he also, awesome. But he also notices there's a lot of things like, Barnett saying, okay, gathering all the owners, uh, funds are down. We need everybody to kick in $10,000. So everybody oh, okay. would kick in $10,000, but everybody would wonder, did Barnett kick anything in? Suddenly business would be up. Everybody would get paid out their $10,000, and suddenly there's a check for Jim Barnett for $10,000. Sure. So it was all... The strategies. Yeah, it was all, was this real or wasn't it? Finally, Ole finds enough, finds enough embezzlement, goes to Barnett and says... I'm going to publicly expose you unless you step down. And Barnett tries to weasel his way out of it, but Ole, you know, the story goes from being very strong in his decision to hanging Barnett out of a window. It says, <laughs> it's somewhere no, between that. Yeah, no, we're not going to do this. So Barnett leaves and retires and says, I'm sorry, you know, have fun with it. So Barnett secedes from the, the NWA. Suddenly at the NWA meeting that year in 1983, Jim Barnett shows up on the arm of Vince McMahon Jr., who also says he's seceding from the NWA as well. Boom. So Barnett, playing both sides against the middle, got kicked out of Georgia, went up to Vince, got in Vince's ear and says, now is your time to go national. Boom. So he's behind, he's behind Vince and Vince's national expansion expansion barnett still has connections with all of the tv places that right. he used to run so right. he's able to get get vince's tv on and everything and these sweet deals that are going against the old formula and he's up with the wwf through wrestlemania 3 suddenly on the wrong day 
Um, Vince McMahon's walking through the office. Here's Jim Barnett say something about, oh, here come the winters. I miss the winters in Atlanta so much. They were so mild. Vince McMahon says, well, I don't want to keep you from that. So as of today, you're free to go back to Atlanta. And that's that. Boom. Fires him. Barnett takes this wrong, goes home, tries to commit suicide with sleeping pills. Oh, wow. Is discovered by his friend Pat Patterson, who calls the ambulance, and then it's rumored that Pat Patterson and Terry Garvin laughed at how silly Barnett looked when he was being wheeled into the ambulance. (laughs) Good friends, right? Yes, right, right. So they go through all that. Uh, Jim Barnett gets through this. Suddenly, World Championship Wrestling is, you know, working on their expansion. Jim slides in back into the Atlanta promotion as an advisor. He's seen on the 20 years on the Superstation special that was on TBS in the yep. very early 90s, which was, I believe that was his first appearance on North American television. Oh. There are some. So he se- really was able to keep himself behind the scenes. Right. There are some scenes. There's a YouTube video of him. Uh, being interviewed about the Australian promotion, but there is also a few Harley defenses in Japan where Jim Barnett is seen in the beginning of the match holding the belt. Okay. So that's where he he was able to do that. And he remained with WCW until Eric Bischoff came in. And when Eric Bischoff did his purge of any wrestling people, that's when Jim Barnett was released from from that organization. Right, right. Uh, Eric Bischoff, of course, was very nervous about anybody exposing that he didn't really know what he was talking about. You know, had a good idea, ran with it, didn't have a follow-up. The end. Right. Barnett then drifts back over to the WWE as an advisor. Uh, just, you know, for a question, you know, I'm sure it was just to give him a token sum to live on while he would, you know, go through business deals and stuff like that. The last star, now we, we've touched on Jim Barnett being able to look and recognize stars. The last person that he saw and recognized before he died in 04 was John Cena who was still doing the cyborg prototype prototype, gimmick. But Barnett said, that boy is going to be your star. So much like with Tommy Rich and countless others, he just looked and said, hmm, that's the person that's going to make you money. And so (laughs) Vince heard that that from Jim Barnett and threw his machine behind him 100%, and he's performed admirably ever since. Who was that again? John Cena. Oh, okay. You can't can't see him. Yes, that's probably why. I'm not familiar. So, and then that's the story of Jim Barnett. So, able to operate behind the scenes, but yet control everything. Uh, Jim Barnett passes away September 18th, 2004. He's 80 years old. Uh, he had uh, developed cancer and had fallen and broken his arm. Who fell and he couldn't get up. And yes, and ended up, uh, I don't know if you contract it, but he got pneumonia. Is that yes. you contract pneumonia? Yes, yeah. Well, pneumonia is just fluid in the lungs, so I'm sure while he was laying so, in bed. Yep, so had cancer, had a fall in the hospital, got pneumonia, and then that's when he died. That's when he passed away. Yeah, so Jim Barnett, definitely an interesting character. Um, I think about it. I think it's great. I think that another one of those guys that definitely is all over the place, did some incredible things, also did some incredibly sleazy things, had his like fingers in lots of different pots doing, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, My just boy. definitely a force and a legend in the business of wrestling. Anything to wrap it up for you that you'd like to say about Jim Barnett before we get going? Uh, if anything, we skimped on the amount of 
power and prestige that he truly held. I mean, this was the person that booked the NWA champion. So if you wanted dates, this was the guy you talked to. Yeah. And if he liked you, he'd help you out. If he didn't like you, there was there was nothing you could do about it. Yeah, an absolute character. Uh, I love the stories. I think it's great. Next week, Derek, we're going to change things up a little bit. We're going to do kind of a little special episode here. We're going to answer some uh, listener questions Oh, geez. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. It's going to be a very special episode. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We had some people that wrote in with some questions for you. And I'd like to ask some questions myself, some things that I'm curious about, and we'll kind of go from there with it. So for Derek St. Holmes Esquire, this is your co-host, Jay Gilke, and you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations exclusively at OneGimmickWorld.com. We will see you next week with a series of questions for the main man himself. Thanks again to Kyle Arpke, our sound engineer, and also to our friend Eric Arsenault for helping us with the theme song. We will see you next time. And again, you've been listening to Cigars and Conversations with Derek St. Holmes, Esquire.